All right, you can turn in your copy of the scriptures if you have one to that text that Amy read for us. Thanks, Amy, for reading that. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. There's a paragraph there that we're going to really hone in on this morning. Uh, and I think that the Lord will have significant things to say to us through it. Uh, but I wanted to say a quick thank you uh, before we dive into this text to all the folks that helped with our work day yesterday. Uh, I came out for part of it at least, and it was fun to see uh, the men and the women and the boys and the girls that were here uh, caring for our church property, using their time and their Saturday uh, to help in those ways that uh, aren't always visible to everyone else. But I want to say a special thanks to our deacons for their work and planning that and for all the folks that, that came out to help make that a success. Uh, but so thank you to them. But it did put my mind on the issue of plants and trees and botany, things like that. I, if you know me at all, I, have, I do not have a green thumb at all. Like I did not grow up planting things. Uh, I do not have any skill or very much knowledge about how to plant things, how to keep things alive. But what that has resulted in for me is a, an awareness of and even a dependence on what I would call planting guides. Uh, these are things like if you buy seeds at the store, for example, uh, or if you buy a plant at the store, typically what it's going to come with is a little, either on the, the bag that it comes in, the packaging for it, or maybe some actual tag uh, with it. It's going to have directions about where to plant these things. It's going to tell you, do you plant it in the sun or in the shade? Uh, and if it's in the sunlight, about how many hours of sun does it need on a given day to help you determine where to, to plant it on your property? It'll tell you how deep to plant it into the ground. It'll tell you how far apart to plant things. Uh, I need those things. I don't know any of those things. I'm dependent upon those to know where and how to plant these things. And you cannot just plant things however you see fit. You just can't think, well, I'm going to plant this right here. I'm going to dig a hole, put the thing in there, kick some dirt around it, and just hope that it grows. That does not end well. Uh, that usually ends, if you notice, there used to be two trees right here. Last time you hear, now there's not because they died. Okay, there, there's death that can come to plants when we don't plant them in the right place when you don't tend to them. There's things that can come up that can squelch the life of plants if we don't plant them in the right places. And I, I mention that because as Christians, we are like plants in some ways. That we need to be spiritually planted in certain environments, in certain soils, if you want to think of that way, if we're going to grow the right way. If we're going to have spiritual life that comes to us, if we're going to have longevity in our spiritual lives, we need to be planted in certain contexts. We can't just plant ourselves wherever we see fit. And thankfully, our Savior has provided us with a planting guide of sorts. He, he's told us the environments we need to be planted in if we're going to grow as Christians. And there's, there's three, I think, primary environments, primary soils, primary venues, if you want to think of it that way, that we need to be planted in as Christians if we're going to grow and if we're going to have longevity in our life as Christians. And uh, those would be these. Uh, we're going to talk about these this Sunday and the next two Sundays would be the, the venues or the soils of worship, community, and service. Those are the three primary places that we see if we're planted in those contexts that God's typically going to give growth to us. He's going to give longevity to us. And if we try to remove ourselves from any of those and maybe plant ourselves in other contexts, growth is not guaranteed. It's not even a safe bet. And so as this school year starts, as, as there's school year starting back up here in the next week, couple weeks, it's a unique opportunity for most of us to recalibrate, to reprioritize our lives, and to think, what do I want to make sure I'm planting myself in? 
Where do I want to make sure I'm planting my kids? Where do I want to make sure I'm planting my own heart and soul? And we want to challenge you to prioritize each of these soils, each of these venues of worship, community, and service to ensure that you are growing as a Christian, that you are planting yourself the way that God has called us to plant ourselves. So my aim today is to tackle that first one, that first place that you need to be planted of worship. And in some ways, it's like preaching to the choir. You are here gathered to worship on Sunday morning with God's people, so you probably don't need a lot of persuading to do so. But my aim today is a simple one. It's to persuade you to ongoingly prioritize worship with the local church each Sunday. To prioritize worship with the local church each Sunday. Um, But as we come to this text today, Hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25, I want to make sure that we are thinking rightly about our attempts to grow, our our attempts to plant ourselves in these places. We need to make sure that we have the right motivations for it, and we need to make sure that we're aware of the real threats that they are. So right motivations and real threats that there are to our growth. And so if you look at the first couple verses of this text, verses 19 through about verse 22, I think it helps us to orient our motives the right way, to make sure that as we're trying to grow as Christians, that we're doing it in the right way. We saw this throughout the book of Galatians the last few months, that if we're going to grow as Christians, it's never in an attempt to acquire God's favor, to acquire God's forgiveness. It's done as a response to God's favor, as a response to God's forgiveness that he has granted us. And the author of this text starts by by making sure we're framing this correctly, that we're understanding this, remembering this. And how he does it is he uses imagery of the Old Testament. He's writing to Hebrews, that's the name, to Jewish people, and he's pointing them back to the old system of the temp where there was the temple and there were sacrifices that would be made and there were priests who would try to mediate in a limited sense between God and the people and he's reminding them of that so what what had been true back then was that there was this temple in Jerusalem this building where God lived in a particular room in this holy of holies and there was a curtain there on one side of it to keep sinful human beings like us away that we to indicate we cannot just come into God's presence because we're sinful And annually, though, what God allowed to happen, what he even commanded to happen, was that there would be one priest who was allowed on a particular day of the year to make sacrifices, specific sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And then just for a short time, he was allowed to go through that curtain. And he was allowed to go into the presence of God. It would have been a glorious, humbling, scary thing for him to do. But he was only allowed to stay in there for a bit. He couldn't stay. He had to come back out. And then another year would roll around where sin would continue. And they'd have to do it again. Another priest would step up and would make sacrifices of animals again. And he would go into that room of God through that curtain again. But then he'd have to leave. And another year and sacrifices, entrance, Leaving, there was, It was an indication of them that there was no actual effectiveness of these things. That these priests weren't worthy to stay with God and these sacrifices weren't worthy enough to gain us access forever into God's presence until Jesus came. That's what this author is reminding them of. That's why he uses the language that he does here. Is that when Jesus finally came, Jesus became both the sacrifice that we needed and the priest that we needed. He, he became the sacrifice that we needed when he went to the cross. Instead of animals being sacrificed, which can never fully substitute for us and our guilt 
to, to bear punishment in our place. A human being, Jesus himself, was sacrificed. One who had our sins laid upon him. Our sins counted to him, and he was put to death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. So that, that's why this author in this text can say things, that it's by the blood of Jesus that we gain entrance, in verse 20, through the curtain into the presence of God. It's not by our sacrifice, it's not by our works, it's by the suffering and the death of Jesus. So he became the sacrifice that we needed, and then he became the priest that we needed. He, he functions as the priest that we need who could actually get into the presence of God permanently. Because when Jesus was raised from the dead just a couple days later, he stayed alive and continues to be alive today, and God brought him back up into heaven where he is with God the Father right now and forever. Not having to leave, not having a temporary stay there, having a permanent stay there. And as the resurrected one, now this author says in verse 22, because that resurrected one, that resurrected priest is there with Jesus forever, he says we can draw near to God. And we can do it with full assurance that he will forgive us, that he's not going to kick us out someday. That we can do so with a clean conscience, even as we know our sin, we can come with a clean conscience because we know Jesus suffered in our place and he has become our priest. And so this author is reminding these people, before he calls them to grow, before he reminds them to keep meeting together, he's reminding them of what Jesus has gained them. And, and we ought to remember that, that our efforts to grow don't impress God. They don't gain us something with God. They're done in response to what Jesus has gained for us. And I want to call you today. There, I know in a crowd this size, there are some of us uh, that we need to not just think first, how do I grow as a Christian, but how do I become a Christian? How do I actually first even approach God? How do I even receive forgiveness from him? And I would call you today to do what verse 22 says, to draw near to God today. Not because you're good, not because you're committing to change, not because you can offer him anything, but because Jesus has died for you and been raised for you. And if you draw near to God, pleading the sacrifice of Jesus, saying, forgive me, please, I want to be with you, I want to be right with you, I promise you he will receive you. He says he will receive you. So I would urge you today to pray to him, ask him for forgiveness because of the work of Jesus. Draw near to him with confidence that he will receive you. That needs to be our motivation if we're going to then try to grow. It's not to impress God, but to respond to him uh, in our efforts to grow. So we need to have the right motivations, but we need, I think in this text you see, and in this whole uh, book of Hebrews, you see though that there, it's not just right motivations we need to have, but we need to be aware that there are real threats to our growth. There are real threats to our longevity in the Christian life. The author is very aware of this. He's trying to make these readers and the listeners aware of this, that there are real threats to our growth. The fact that we just start professing faith in Jesus does not guarantee we're going to continue in it. There's all sorts of threats that will come to us. And you see in this text hints of this. He knew, uh, like in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. He knew that there was a threat that we would let go of it. That we wouldn't hold tight to it, but that we'd slowly lose our grip upon the confession of our hope. That we'd lose hope in the gospel of Christ. He knew in verse 24, you see, he says that we need to consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. What that should tell us is that we can face a real threat, a real temptation, that our motives to love people and to do good works on behalf of God can slowly sink to the bottom. The things that used to be up on the surface and very evident to everyone can slowly sink to the bottom of our cold hearts. 
He knew in verse 25, as he says, that we need to be encouraging each other as the day of Jesus draws near. He knew that we have a threat of discouragement, that we don't just automatically just go around as encouraged, godly, uh, hopeful people, that we can be prone to discouragement as Christians. There's a threat to our growth. But the primary threat I think you see in this text, and I want to address today, is the threat of isolation as Christians. I would encourage you to actually look at this passage and pay attention in verses 29 to 25 how many plural pronouns are used. Instead of I, me, my, or you, your, uh, listen to how many plural pronouns are used. If you look at verse 19, for example, he says we. Verse 20, he says us. Verse 21, he says we. Verse 22, he says us, our, our. Verse 23, he says us an hour. Verse 24, he says us. Verse 25, he says you, but it's that y'all. If we were in Kentucky or further south, we'd say y'all. Every one of those is plural pronouns. He's addressing this congregation as a whole, Christians collectively, but we have a temptation and we face a threat to just see ourselves as individuals who relate to God as individuals, who almost have no need of the church, who have no need of fellow Christians. We just think of ourself and God as me and him. But this author knew that there is a real threat of Christians to isolate from each other, to become individualistic in how we would approach our spiritual lives, to think that our growth is just something we can do on our own, in our own world, and just manufacture it ourselves. But the author knew that that is a threat to our growth. We need other Christians. We, need, we must not be isolated as Christians. Isolation and independence is a threat to a Christian, not a virtue. And so aware of these threats, then this author uh, talks to them, and he, he injects this phrase that we're going to focus on today, verse 25, of not neglecting to meet together. Uh, that's what one of the things he's calling them to do, is that he wants them to not neglect meeting together. He wants them to be aware of the threats that are out there, and then to, to address those, combat those, by actually gathering together as a church, like what we're doing this morning. If we are going to grow as Christians, I, I want you to hear this clearly. If you are going to grow as Christian, if we're going to grow as Christians, we must prioritize gathering together with the church Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. That is a must. It's, it's part of the planting guide that God has given to us. And you may challenge me here as I start. I want to talk about the priority of worship. You may challenge me and say, well, he doesn't actually talk about a worship service, a worship gathering. Why do you think that's what he's talking about in verse 25 when he says not neglecting to meet together? Can't we just do that kind of like buddies out at the coffee shop or talking around the water cooler at work or across the fence in the backyard? Can't that be how we gather together? Those are good things. Those are wonderful things. But there's a few reasons I think what he's talking about here is, is prioritizing the worship gathering. And I would say there's two primary ones. One is that this book of the Bible that we call Hebrews, I don't know if you realize this, but it's not a normal letter like other New Testament. It's actually probably, as best we can tell, a sermon, like a transcript of a sermon that would have been delivered in a worship gathering. You read it as such, and if you read it with those eyes, you'll see it. Like he's referencing texts and explaining texts all the time. He's not just writing new material. And so when these people would have heard this the first time or read it, they would have been in the context of a worship gathering. And so when they hear this person say or see them write, don't neglect to meet together, that would have been on their mind, of meeting together for the purpose of worship as a church. 
But even more than that, you see throughout the New Testament that the primary gathering of God's people was for worship. It, it was for the gathering together to worship God together on what the New Testament calls the Lord's Day, on Sunday, on the first day of the week. And if you want to write down a couple of texts, you can look this up and look at Acts chapter 20, for example. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 and following, Luke, who was writing that, records for us that they're in this city called Troas, that the, the Christians are gathered, he says, on the first day of the week, he says, to break bread together, which seems to be an allusion to communion, and then they were taught by the Apostle Paul afterwards. So there's this gathering on the first day of the week to take communion and to be taught together. But then a, a more a clear example, I think, of this is if you read through the letter of 1 Corinthians, read through it sometimes, and Paul over and over to this group of Christians in Corinth talks about them coming together. And when he talks about them coming together, he references stuff that they do together and gives them directions about what to do together of things like communion when they come together in chapter 11. And in chapter 14, he talks about when they come together, them sharing things like songs and lessons, and prophecies, and things like that, that they share things together, they sing things, they're taught things to, when they come together. And then even in chapter 16, he talks about them collecting offerings on that first day of the week. Uh, that there's things that they did together that we still do today on purpose in our worship gatherings. This was what was the pattern for the early church, and they made it a priority to gather Sunday by Sunday. And you, some of you may know this, but even the idea of gathering is kind of baked into the word church. In the original language, there's this word that we see translated as church, that's this word ecclesia. Uh, and what it means, at least in part, is an assembly of people. And it, it's not just an assembly that's kind of metaphysical, like invisible or metaphorical, like, hey, we're assembled in our hearts type of thing. It's an actual physical assembly of people. That's what a church is. And uh, Pastor John MacArthur and his, the elders of his church are actually going through a lot of difficulty right now in the state of California uh, about whether to worship together in person or not. And they released a statement uh, a week or two ago. And I don't agree with everything they say in that statement. But one of the things they said in that that I really appreciated, and they, they said this. They said that a non-assembling assembly is a contradiction in terms. That a non-assembling assembly, a non-churching church, is a contradiction in terms. Churches are intended to actually meet together week by week by week. But in today's text, we see in verse 25 that it was the habit of some, even in that ancient church, to not actually meet together. It wasn't just this noble pattern of always meeting and rejoicing together. There was a pattern also established, even with the earliest of Christians, of staying away from worship. It's not something new for our generation. This was something that is age old. Some were making it a practice of not joining in worship. And it's not hard for us to imagine reasons, is it? Some of these may resonate in our own hearts recently or in the future or in the past. Think of some reasons they may have neglected to meet together. Maybe it was a work-related reason. Sun, not everybody was Christians around them and would want to take Sunday off. It was the start of the week, and so they would have thought, Maybe my competitors aren't going to take a day off. I can't take a day off. I need to work instead of worship. Maybe it was their children, if God had children that were young in their home, who uh, children have always been squirrely. 
Children have always been distracting in some sense. Uh, children aren't always motivated to come to worship, and so they might have viewed that as a reason to stay away. Maybe it was strained relationships with other Christians that they thought, you know what, brother so-and-so is going to be there. I really don't want to talk to that guy. Or I, I do not want to talk to sister so-and-so. I'm just going to stay home this week. It could be that they had uh, sin in their hearts that they're either ashamed of if it's a private sin and they feel like I'm not worthy to come for some reason to worship, or if it's something that's a more public sin, maybe they felt embarrassed. Like, I can't show my face among these people. I can't worship. Maybe for them, and being under threat in their day, it was a fear of persecution. If I gather with these people, I'm going to be labeled as a Christian and I have a target on my back. Maybe it was boredom with the gatherings, maybe saying things like we still hear echoes of today where we say, you know what, I, just, I haven't felt moved when I've gathered with God's people. I haven't felt impacted by the worship services. I'll just stay home. I could do better things with my time. Or maybe they just felt depressed and peopled out and not wanted to be around human beings at all, let alone Christians. There's all sorts of reasons that our hearts have created since ancient times and continue to create today that, that lead us to make a habit of not meeting together. We are creatures of habit, right? That's how we refer to human beings sometimes, and I appreciate the author interjects that phrase, it became the habit of some to not meet together. I remember when I was a kid, my parents gave me, to no avail on their part, a book about how to clean my room, uh, how me and my brother could clean our room, and I gave all these steps by steps of how to clean your room, and one thing I remember that said at the end, it said something like, it only takes 21 days to form a habit, and if you clean your room for 21 days, it'll become a habit and second nature to you. I never made it past day two, I don't think, uh, but there is a reality in which when we do things over and over again, they become a habit for us, for good or for ill, uh, for worshiping or not worshiping. Those patterns become habits in our life, gathering or not gathering, whether we intended to or not, become patterns in our life that we perpetuate. And the reality is, as creatures of habit, when we value things, we prioritize them. And when we make a habit of something and we value it, we speak to our excuses instead of letting excuses speak to us. We say, this is important to me. I will do this. I will be part of this uh, no matter what. And we need to become creatures of habit that habitually come and worship with God's people, that don't just view it as an optional, preferential thing, but that we view it as a priority and make it a priority in our life. And we have all sorts of reasons that I already mentioned that some make it a habit of not gathering together, but we've had some new ones in recent months come up, haven't we? In this weird time in which we live, there's some new things that might tempt us to stay away, tempt us to make a habit of staying away from God's people. And we need to be attentive to these things. We need to be alert to them in ourselves or maybe even our brothers and sisters who we love who aren't here today. People who've started to make a habit of not gathering together with God's people. And I want to mention a few of those and kindly, lovingly address them. Not as a means to shame people who are not here this morning. Not as a means for you to take and just wield and, and bang over the heads of people who aren't here this morning. But to be aware of and to be able to speak to as a friend in Christ. Or to speak to ourselves if we face these temptations in the weeks ahead. There's been three new reasons I think that we may neglect to meet together. We may make it a habit of staying away from each other. And they'd be these. The convenience of live streaming. Which ironically is not working today. Uh, the second, the fear of sickness. And third, the frustration with restrictions. 
So the convenience of live stream is one that I know has been real. I've talked to people about it. Uh, it is important, though, if that is you and you face this temptation to stay home, to sit on the couch, sit in your kitchen, uh, watch and observe worship from afar, mediated through a screen, I want to remind you that an important part of our worship together as a church family is not just what you receive, but what you provide to others. And when you are not here, we don't receive that from you. And when you're not here, you don't receive that from us. God made us with eyes to see each other and ears to hear each other. We're to hear each other sing. We're to hear each other pray. We're to see expressions on each other's faces when we see one another. We're to actually ask each other, how could I pray for you? And to actually pray for them. To share things that have been encouraging in our life that week when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ. We were made to actually assemble it, the end goal of worship is not just to get sermons in our heads and songs in our ears. That, and we can just pick a means by which to do that, like podcasting or live streaming. The, the intention is to gather together. And we want you as a church family, as your pastors, to know that we are glad to be live streaming right now. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful technology in some ways. It's an incredible technology in some ways. But it is an inferior experience. And we want to make no bones about that. We are going to have live streams temporarily. Our goal is not to have live streams till Jesus returns. It's for this season to provide a means for those who are unable uh, for various reasons to worship with us. So we need to be aware of that temptation. But another one that may motivate us to neglect meeting together is a fear of sickness. There are some who have legitimate medical reasons, sincere threats to their life if they're around people who maybe have this virus that we have right now. But for a majority of us, that is not the case. And for many people, though, there has been a fear that has developed of coronavirus, a fear of what could happen to me, a fear of what may happen through me to others. And those are legitimate things for us to consider and to think about. But I want to call you today, if that is you, if you feel fearful and you're letting that keep you away. I want to call you to verse 23 where he says, to let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Our hope and your hope, if you are a fearful Christian, is not that you will avoid the coronavirus. It's not that you will avoid getting sick. It's not that you will just delay your death till a natural death someday when you are older. The hope that we hold fast to is the hope of the resurrection. That we will not avoid death, but that we will conquer death through Jesus. And if you are afraid, remember that. You need to be with us to remember that. Because I will tell you, I have been somebody who has lived in fear at times in my life. And isolation is like oxygen for the fire of fear. Like it'll just build it and build it and build it. it will, your, your fear will not go away by staying away from people. Yeah, it will intensify. I promise you that I have lived through that. You need to gather with God's people to remember our confession of hope. And the third thing I say is frustration with restrictions. That is the reason some people have started to not meet together. is because we are frustrated with the, thing, the limitations that we have in worship. We're frustrated with the rules we have to follow. We're frustrated with the things either that the government is asking us to do or that our church leaders are asking us to do or that socially are imposed upon us. We are frustrated, many of us, and I resonate with your frustration. I understand your frustration. We have had to meet as a church family the last few months in some days where it's blazing heat. I've had to meet with you when it's been blazing hot. 
We've had to wear, we wore masks the first few weeks that we're here, even outside. And friends, we probably will wear them again when we return inside, which we'll share more about next Sunday night at our members meeting. It is sprinkled on us a couple times. I have pages, I have sweat drops on my Bible right now from my face right now from preaching whatever temperature degrees this is. We have had all sorts of restrictions. We've sat in folding chairs instead of comfortable chairs. We, we've sat on blankets and had to bring umbrellas and had to park in weird places and, or maybe sit in our cars sometimes. There have been all sorts of restrictions upon us. I understand frustration with that. I resonate with frustration with that, but if that is keeping you away, I may resonate with your frustration, but I cannot, and as one of your pastors and friends, I cannot condone your absence from the gathering of God's people because of it. Frustration is a terrible, terrible motivator for our decisions. Love is a far better one. And if that's you and you feel frustrated about current or future restrictions, I would call upon you, let your love for fellow Christians trump your frustration with restriction. Actually come, actually assemble with us, actually sing with us, actually pray with us, actually talk to people that are here instead of staying away because you're frustrated. I would encourage each of us either to continue the habit of gathering on Sunday by Sunday to worship or to start it next Sunday if you've been staying away. Let's worship together because whether you realize it or not, whether you feel it or not, our gatherings on Sundays are of incredible importance to you. They're of monumental significance to you whether you know that and realize that or not. You desperately need more than you know to worship with God's people Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. It is essential that you be planted here in our gatherings for worship. I want to end by sharing a few of the, the benefits of worship. Have we seen the priority of worship and the command to not neglect meeting together? That should be enough for us. If God says something, we should be willing to do it, no matter even if we don't totally understand it or, or realize why he's asking us to do it. But in this text itself, we see several benefits of worshiping together. We see reasons and, and good fruit that comes from our worship together that should motivate us to press on in gathering. I want to mention three of them in particular, several benefits of worship that are described in this passage. In the first several verses, 19 through uh, 22 or 23, I would say this, that we, when we gather to worship, we are reminded of the gospel. We, we need to remember these things. We, we are tempted to drop them. We're tempted to let go of this confession of our hope and the good news of Jesus to, to let it fade into the background of our life. But we need to have it brought back to the forefront Sunday by Sunday by Sunday because we may enter Sunday feeling things like shame, feeling disinterested, feeling like Jesus isn't as great as I used to think he was, or maybe on another end of the spectrum feeling self-righteous and really proud of ourselves, and we need to be humbled as we gather together by hearing the good news. But we are always in need of being reminded of the gospel of Christ. There is not a week that goes by in your life or mine where I don't need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus. We need it over and over again. And that's why when we gather, that's why we emphasize the work of Jesus. Uh, in what we preach, we most certainly emphasize the work of Jesus. We need to hear from God Sunday by Sunday, hear his word read, hear his word preached. But it's also why we do things like we'll do next Sunday where we take communion together as God's people. It's an experiential, tangible reminder of what Christ has done for us. That's why we sing together. It's because we're not just singing to God, but we're singing to each other as well. Uh, where Colossians chapter 3 says that singing is a means of teaching. 
It's a, a means by which the word of Christ can dwell in us. Uh, we need to have the word of God, the good news of Christ, about him being our priest, being our sacrifice. We need to have those things impressed upon our hearts as a community over and over again. And so, when, like a plant, when we come Sunday by Sunday, it's like us planting roots a little bit deeper down into the gospel. Just like a week's worth of growth deeper down into the gospel, and it's going to make us stronger to last longer in our faith until the return of Christ or until we pass away. We are reminded of the gospel when we come together. That's part of why we gather. It's part of the fruit of it. But a second that you see more in verse 24 is that we are stirred up to love and good works when we gather together as God's people. Keeping that flower analogy, I don't know much about flowers. I don't even know the right terms uh, for these types of plants. But you know how some flowers will kind of collapse down, and then when the morning comes and the sun returns and they've had water, they open back up? I kind of think of Sunday as that opening back up of God's people, that as the week progressed, maybe we kind of collapsed down and we lost our motive to, to love each other, to love God. But Sunday comes and we hear the songs and we sing them and we hear the prayers and we hear the word read and we hear the word preached. And it's like we're opened back up to actually live now for God, to actually love fellow Christians in that week ahead, to actually do good works to our community on behalf of God in that week ahead. But I would say this to you. If we're going to love each other, we need to be with each other, Right? You don't love people very well who you don't see and who you never hear from. Our, our hearts are not oriented that way. Love is predicated on presence. And we need to be with each other and see how each other lives, see how each other handle their kids, see how each other interact with their spouses, see how each other encourage the people around them, see how they sing, see and hear how they pray. We need to witness those things because it motivates us to do the same to actually be loving people, to be actually good works-oriented people. If we don't gather together, if you don't gather together, I promise you it'll become more a tendency in your life. Instead of stirring people up to love and good works, you're going to stir them up towards anger and evil works. And if you don't believe that, think back to, so if you're on social media, think back to when we were gathering together and actually seeing each other and talking with each other. Think back to how things were back in January and February, the good old days of how people treated each other, and then watch how people speak to each other now. A big reason is because we're not seeing each other. It's way easier to, to spit evil at people and be sarcastic with people and be biting at people when you don't see them, when you don't actually have to look in their eyeballs and we don't actually have to see them. We need to gather as God's people because it reminds us, yes, these are my brothers and sisters who I will love and who I will do good works toward. It is important when we come together for worship that we come in order to serve each other, not just to receive. That, that, we, uh, that we come to benefit each other. I'd encourage you, if you're a member of our church, to come on Sunday mornings ready to sing, ready to pray, but also with the, your intent up of who could I encourage, who could I stir up today who might be having their motivation to love and serve, waning and sinking down. Who could I serve? Who could I build up? Because we need each other to stir each other up. I need you to stir me up. You need me to stir you up. And that is a fruit of our worship is that we have that desire to love and do good works stirred up in us. And the last one is this, is that we are encouraged when we gather together, we are encouraged to press on to the end. And you see this in verse 25. He says, to not neglect meeting together, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
keeping with the plant analogy, we need to be plants that don't just shoot up for a day, shoot up for a week, shoot up for a year, and then uh, wither away and die. We need to be plants that last, that have longevity. And worship is a key to keeping us growing, keeping us alive in the faith. We need encouragement as Christians. Some of you may have entered into this Sunday feeling discouraged feeling downcast, feeling alone, feeling disillusioned, feeling confused, feeling doubts in your hearts. You may be distracted from the things of God. And if those things are true and you stay away from God's people, they're just going to intensify. And you're going to slowly drift away from God. You're going to slowly lose interest in Him. And the the flower of your faith is going to slowly wither away and die. But coming together as God's people gives us encouragement to press on in the faith, to endure in our allegiance to Jesus, endure in our trust in him and our obedience for him. We are reminded as we gather together today, as we gather together next Sunday, if Jesus doesn't come back this week, as we gather again the Sunday after that, we are reminded of the day, the day that is drawing near. That's the day that Jesus will return. Because there's going to be some week where Jesus returns. And what a glorious week that will be. But every Sunday when we gather, we are looking ahead to that day. We're saying, I need to press on in my faith. I need to not just to bank on the, the past and my allegiance to him then, but I need to press on enduring. I need to press on in faith. And my brothers and sisters help remind me to do that. There's a reason we start our week in worship and not end it. Because we're not just looking back to the cross and the resurrection, although we are, but we are looking ahead to this week to come and whatever trials we may face. And we are more than that looking ahead to that day that will come where Jesus will return. And every Sunday is a foretaste. It's a, a preview. It's a trailer, so to speak, of that glorious day when all of God's people from every nation, from every generation, gather together when we assemble together around the throne of Jesus, that day that he returns. There, there's a, an author who I heard uh, say this. He said that a, our worship gatherings are an echo from the future. That's how he phrased it. That's that someday we're going to assemble around the throne of Christ, and it will be for all eternity uh, in his new earth. But as we assemble together Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, it's a faint echo of that day that will come, that experience that we will have. It's not nearly as sweet today as it will be then, but this is a foretaste of it. The sweetness that we get a little taste of now, we will receive in greater measure that day. But that day that's coming is also a day of judgment. It's a day of joy when Jesus returns for those who are trusting in him, those who are persevering in the faith. It's a day of joy and delight and rest for our souls that will be for all eternity. But when Jesus returns as well, it will be a day of judgment for his enemies. And that's a sobering thing. This whole section of Hebrews is a sobering section to say, do not fade in your faith. Do not wither and die in your faith. Stay near to the people of God. Stay worshiping with the people of God. Hold fast the confession of hope. Do not ever walk away from the hope of our Savior, Jesus. And we need to be worshiping if we are going to do that. So I would encourage you, prioritize worship with the local church Sunday by Sunday. It's the first environment you need to plant yourself in. We'll talk about community and about service the next two Sundays, but may we never forsake the gathering together in person of God's people on the Lord's day. 
want to say this in closing. I would be amiss if I did not say this, that I've primarily talked today about the benefit that we receive from worship, but I don't want anyone to walk away from today thinking that worship is primarily about us, that it's primarily about protecting us, that it's primarily about building our faith up and getting us ready for this week ahead and getting us ready for that day. It does that. There's a glorious thing that comes to us through that, but even more than benefiting us, our worship brings glory to God. We worship together to honor him, to praise him, to thank him, to ascribe to him the value that he actually has. And so there's an opportunity Sunday by Sunday, not just for us to draw near to each other, but like this text said, to draw near to God himself, to draw near to him as a church family. And so may we leave our gatherings this Sunday and every Sunday that God continues to give us not just thankful for our fellow plants, but thankful for the gardener who's planted us. Amen? The gardener who's given us life and who will sustain that life to the return of our Savior. But pray with me, and then we will uh, sing a closing song, and I'll leave you with uh, a word of benediction.